Welcome back. My guest is Alan Watt, and we are now going to open the telephone line. If you have a question or a comment, you may call toll-free, 1-800-289-1092, toll-free throughout North America. That's Canada and the United States, of course, 1-800-289-1092. Alan, um, at one point here I, I mentioned, and you confirmed, that in ancient times, these occult managers of civilization uh, developed one religion for the um, for for the elite and another religion for the masses. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you give us just a, a quick thumbnail sketch of that and why they did that? It, it was to bring a slave class up, really, in the belief they were an inferior. Species, actually, actual different species, when, and uh, of course you tell them that the nobility and all the aristocracy are a, are a higher species, closer to the godhead. That was standard all over the world, really, uh, right, in, right up to the up until through Scottish and, and the British kings and queens, who believed that they were descended from the gods themselves. Now Plato went further into the description of this, where he. Be- their religion at the top was always based on a twofold type of reincarnation, which is different than the one spun out today. Um, the religion at the top was that that they were different from the public. This is what they told each other, and Plato went through this because, in 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 some time in a distant distant past, they were the rebels who rebelled against the Creator. And because they were cast here, where, where, where ordinary people already lived, they arrived with more psychic special powers than the ordinary people. And they created their own bodies from the material at hand by willing it into existence. And only a perfect body could be inhabited by their perfect spirit. So, in effect, then, they're claiming to be what the rest of the world, the Western world, would refer to as the fallen angels under the command of Lucifer. correct. Ah, they're Luciferians. Yeah, but you might say Luciferian. Yeah. And uh, rebels, they're proud of the term, Mm -hmm. and that they're behind all revolutions. And uh, they they claim that once they started to inbreed with the, the people already here, they began to lose those special powers and hence the need to go back into the inbreeding program which is still going on today. Yeah, the bloodline. And blood the priesthoods who take the genealogies. Mm-hmm. All right, let's go to the telephone line. Uh, caller, your first name and where are you calling from? Hi, Kevin. This is Al from New York. I'd like to ask uh, Alan Watt uh, if he could uh, give us a little more information about uh, the tie-in with uh, Freemasonry and uh, Hindi or Hinduism, and uh, I was reading a book uh, recently, or just started reading a book by David Hatcher Childress, I think, or Childress, about uh, called the Nana Aircraft of Ancient India and Atlantis, and I was wondering if Alan would uh, talk, if he knows anything about that, if he would talk about that uh, going way back. Where did they get this? Uh, you know, technology uh, that they wrote in uh, 
uh, about the Brahmins or the uh, caste system. Okay, we'll get him to comment on that. Thanks for the call. Okay. Well, uh, well, the the caste system falls right into this, in in effect, (coughs) because um, in India, with the same the same religion of of a beginning for the, the elite body. Um, to do with a special type of reincarnation into perfect bodies and and only the perfect body you'll find that modern masonry or what we call modern masonry is really in fact Charles Darwin when he came out with his theory of evolution was only be, on behalf of the Royal Society uh, that's the scientific uh, char- the Royal Chartered Scientific Society of England um, he was simply brought forth to put into the public's mind what Masons had already been taught. That was their religion. Evolution uh, was their religion. And they believed that, um, uh, although they themselves had been made perfect that through the, the special selective breeding all done through the ages, they would become uh, once again uh, as the beings they had been in the beginning these ones that were cast here but, but far more perfect with the same abilities of intellect uh, command able to command people and and uh, tremendously uh, fantastic physical bodies um, that's what Charles Darwin's theory was it was nothing more than, than expanded Freemasonry in fact his grandfather had already put a treatise out on selective breeding and uh, and uh, evolution before Charles did. Now look at the Charles Darwin family themselves. Uh, his great-grandfather, his grandfather, his father and himself only married one other family into one other family and that was the Wedgwood family of England who were famous for their pottery. A very wealthy family and that's the only family they ever interbred with for all those generations. Charles himself had ten children by his wife, who was a Wedgwood, and when she died, uh, and most of the children did die too, and two of them were insane, um, when she died, he married his mother, a Wedgwood, her sister, his aunt. So they've been going down through the ages, interbreeding mm-hmm. for special qualities to try and keep up these special qualities. And you can jump back to Plato and say, my goodness, this is the same thing that he was talking about then. Uh, 2,300 years ago selective breeding for special abilities if you want a good scientist you get a man and a woman who are very very good at it and uh, interbreed them take their offspring and and match them up with the same over and over again Mm -hmm. Uh, that's what we're seeing so so the Brahmins of India would enter this in more detail of course that uh, man was far older and they did say and remember that the Indian uh, upper class is a caste class system, very much like England, by the way. I used to say, my goodness, isn't it so similar to the English system? Uh, that the Aryan people, people think of Germany being the Aryan race, and they, they got that from theosophy. But the Aryan people, whom the Brahmins are proudly descended from, uh, were a pure white race. Uh, again, light hair, blue eyes, etc., who came into India, um, some say around 500 B.C., I think it was much earlier, and uh, 
they lorried over different parts of India. They were told not to interbreed with the Dravidian, the, the darker race there. Over time they did, and you end up with this caste system. So your color literally designated your position in society, right down to the darker ones who are now called the untouchables. So you had a fixed society. The, the Brahmins ensured they were taught reincarnation at all levels of society and, and karma so that you could train people to believe, well, that's your position in life, accept it. You must be bad and you're your last one to end up as an untouchable or a, or a, or a slave or a, a peasant. And if it's, you do very good and, and, and you behave where you are now, then you yeah. may come back in a higher caste. That's right. Mm-hmm. Now, it is also true um, that they have, in the old Vedas, uh, drawings of what appear to be aircraft. A lot has been made of it. We just don't know uh, if this is early ancient technology. Um, well, it's also in Egypt. Yes, in Egypt, too. Yeah, and, of course, they, uh, even the BBC had a documentary years ago on the lead-acid batteries. Yeah. that were found in Egypt, which are now in the Cairo Museum. Mm-hmm. And they have lead and copper plates in them. And the, the man said, watch this. He poured in the battery acid, connected two uh, wires to a bulb, and sure enough, it lit up. Because this has no other function than being an electric battery. Mm-hmm. So they had electricity. Yeah. And they found those batteries. And I was in, in, in Babylon as well, or, or Persia. Yeah, or Iraq. Uh, well, I'm, I'm familiar with some in Damascus, but yeah. um, also in Abydos, in mm-hmm. uh, in a temple there. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the, car- the uh, some carvings up on the frieze uh, show very clearly what looks like a helicopter, um, perhaps a jet, but certainly some type of aircraft with wings mm-hmm. and a uh, rudder. Um, it also shows something that looks very much like what we would call a flying saucer. And these were carved thousands of years ago. Yeah. Well, a lot, you see, of deceit and deception, too, has crept in with uh, sensationalism uh, from the times of Eric von Daniken, uh, who actually had a little guy in Mexico carve a lot of these things out for him. And uh, a, a, a reporter from Britain found this little guy who was getting five pesos per piece. And that's when Von Daniken hit the dust. However, he put out a lot of disinformation about the spaceship. He said, now, the thing about the flying saucers is just a, a globe with wings. And that's the traditional uh, um, way not, that even... Not in Abydos. Not in Abydos. Uh, well, I mean, I've, seen Abydos. Vedas, I've seen the Vedas. Uh-huh. And, and the Vedas too uh, do more descriptions about what what existed more so than drawings, and they show um, they said that the gods now the gods remember were your kings, mm-hmm. the, the hierarchy they were always called gods, and um, uh, they said that they fought each other in a big battle towards mm-hmm. the end of the last age, uh, and they could fly they had flying machines. Mm-hmm. And they shot different colored rays or lights at each other. Yeah. Uh, the red one would burn anyone wearing metal, just like uh, microwave. You know. Mm-hmm. So we have these odd, odd things being discussed. Well, um, also now you're talking about the uh, ancient writings there in India. 
uh, in the Mahabharata. Now, there is a description of something that if you don't, if I if I just take that description uh, and and show it to someone, don't tell them where it's from. Don't don't tell them it's part of an, an ancient Indian epic, and they read it, and I ask what does that describe? They will say that describes a thermonuclear blast. And uh, the interesting thing is that uh, there has been found in Rajasthan a site of a uh, thermal nuclear blast in strata from 12,500 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, you know, so some of these things may be real. May be real, although we know they can also be caused by very high velocity uh, meteors coming in. It's different, when you get this different of them coming in. Yeah, but it's a different type of radiation. Mm-hmm. It's a whole different type of radiation and different rate of decay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there is, uh, uh, to date, there has been no real comment or any kind of debunking of this site. No, no. E- even though there are many clues, still less than regular history, and it's up to the individual to decide. I mean, we can get carried away, obviously. Sure, we can. Um, by limited information. Limited information sells a lot of books. Uh, that's that's why the authors jump on it and take them off. But uh, we do know that um, the ancient Greeks, who learned everything again in Egypt, mm-hmm. started the promised theory, the atom theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, back uh, around 300 BC, 400 BC, and they had the atomic schools, we call them. And they're well documented, we've got records of it all, and they knew, they knew that you had tiny, whirling bits of matter, and, and they said that the atom was not the smallest part of matter. Mm-hmm. And supposedly, we always suspected this, but just found out for sure in the 20th century. Now, it's impossible for men living thousands of years ago. I don't care how much leisure time they had and uh, how many slaves did all their work for them to give them this leisure. Mm-hmm. I don't care. If you didn't have the scientific knowledge and the equipment to go after what you're talking about, you could never have dreamed up the atom. So what are you saying? Are you, are you saying that they had the technology? They had to have. Uh-huh. They had to have this. There's, there's no way a, a person with with, with uh, limited understanding of physics, um, no microscopes and atomic microscopes, etc., could break down the content or even even dream of the content of hard matter. He understood perceptions and how they, they differ from angles of stance to, to the object and so on. But they knew that nothing was technically solid and that if these atoms could be made to vibrate at a certain speed, you could put a man or a chair through a wall without injury. So they so, use this stuff. Uh, and, uh, if, uh, now, this was from 300 B.C.? Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's not so far back. I mean, at that, at, that, at that stage of history, we dig up a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. and we've not as far as I know, recovered, uh, archaeologists have not recovered any of this uh, high technology for 
looking at atoms and so forth, is it possible that instead of them discovering this, that they were told this, perhaps, by uh, beings from off-world? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think there have been many ages where a few come through with the knowledge and never share it with the vast majority. Power is kept by the limitation of knowledge by a few, mm -hmm. because knowledge is power. And if man, if, if it's true that they've gone through at least five definite and two possibly more ages in, in India, in the Indian records, then uh, man is millions of years old. Uh, you can imagine the knowledge that was accumulated during that time. I, I agree with that. Uh, but what's your take on why we haven't discovered... Uh, in all these archaeological digs, any of this very high technology that would have made it possible for them to understand atomic theory? Mm -hmm. I think it's probably because it's buried so deep in specific areas uh, that no one will get to it until it's the time to admit to it. <laughs> that that's how history unfolds. Uh, suddenly at the right time, uh, something will be announced, something will be found. Mm -hmm. But what I also found very interesting was when they went after um, Iraq, and, and remembering Iraq and Iran were greater Persia in the old system, and Babylon was, was there. Um, during the whole time that Bill Clinton was in, thousands of cruise missiles were sent over. We got so used to it, it was just, you know, nothing between our bites of food at dinner time to watch these things get shot off the ships but these were not hitting the cities these were going off into places in the desert where no one was and they were they were just pounding the earth and blowing it all up and uh, some people have come forward recently and admitted these were ancient sites where that hadn't even been dug up properly so evidence was being destroyed as far as I was concerned why do you think they would do that? because they don't want the public to know uh that there, are, there are, even today we have three levels of sciences today we have, we have from professors down that's the lowest level of reality that we are given and that's all uh, supplemented and um, augmented by the regular magazines you buy of the stores so we're, we're trying to work towards this and one day we hope to that's the bottom level of science uh, Dr. Nick Bigage on the CBC television in Canada who by the way will be with us next week uh -huh. well he's very good he he, um, he showed uh, on the Wendy Mesler show a few years ago a whole tray full or, or table full of these little handheld remote size gizmos and he told Wendy to stand 20 feet away and he pointed one at her and said what do you hear she says, I hear music in the center of my head. And now he could just as easily have put words in, in her head. Yeah. He said, this equipment was used by the CIA in the 1950s. Now, it had to be solid state before the public even heard of the transistor in the 60s. And he says, this stuff is all obsolete. This is obsolete. Mm -hmm. It works within line of sight up to any distance. And I wondered how many people were locked up in... And, and hospitals for hearing voices during all this this period, you know. 
<laughs> so uh, that was that was one. That, so so today now the CIA are only one step up, but there's another level beyond them. There's always a trinity in this system of the for the controllers wouldn't even share their higher sciences with those below them who help them because you want to maintain power. You never share it totally. So, so it's been that in all ages. What kind of technology exists at the higher level? Um, I think it, it's probably, as I said, in ancient times, uh, that 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 uh, high science to the general public appears to be magic. It's so far ahead mm-hmm. of anything the public are told. I can remember when the BBC in the 1970s did a documentary special on Area 51 in the U.S. And they were up in a hill there looking down um, when it first got some attention. Mm-hmm. And they were able to keep a team there. And they photographed these these flying saucers coming out of underground hangars at that big base there, which is an American Air Force base. So the presumption is they're making them there and testing them there. Mm-hmm. And these things came out of the ground silently. Um they could go up into the air, do all kinds of odd right-angle turns. They could stop in a dime after moving at hundreds, maybe thousands of miles an hour. And they could actually s- stay stationary and then disappear and then appear again. Now, whether it's some sort of cloaking device or what, we don't know. Mm-hmm. There's so many speculations about it. But that was in the 1970s. And how they deflected all of that was to, was, was to bring in the disinformation uh, characters Oh, these these things are from outer space, you know. Mm-hmm. But here they are coming out of the earth here uh, in a military base, uh, which which tells you they were, they were making them here. You know, and, uh, I remember during Gulf War One, and you may have seen this, or you may have uh, read about it since. Mm-hmm. During Gulf War One, uh, they would do press conferences virtually every day uh, from the war theater. Uh, from the area, and uh, General Schwarzkopf would uh, always make some comments to the press about how the war was progressing. Yeah. And there was uh, a question, I don't remember who asked, but a question about, uh, well, you know, what is your objective? How do you know when you've reached your objective? And he commented on that, and uh, then they said, well, how will you do this how what is your plan how do you plan to do this and he said it's simple it's like a snake you cut off its head its body dies and that's what we're going to do and uh, Saddam is going to have to surrender and that's it then the question was and this is where it got interesting well what if he does not surrender and Schwarzkopf very quickly said we've got things to throw at him he cannot even imagine and then he said all of this technology that all of you are so amazed at all of these things you've been seeing these smart bombs and and missiles flying down smokestacks is obsolete Mm -hmm. we have things he cannot even imagine do you remember that? Yes, oh yeah, in fact, I, I've laughed at every war we've had, really, because it's to, it's to convince the public. I mean, here are soldiers going off with uh, new uniforms, 
uh, but standard equipment really they're still firing basically gunpowder and projectiles that have been around for a thousand years and they keep telling us this is the latest model and uh, and they're so far ahead in science they wouldn't even they don't even have to invade a country we know that too because there are satellites arrays way up yonder they can laser or bombard a whole a whole continent if they wish to with various types of pulsations and knock everyone out or kill them if they wish to so I, I, they're going through the usual I call it the low level routine for the bottom level matrix people the general population that this is the best that we have it's a big joke it's mm-hmm. a big joke yeah. they, don't, they don't even need troops actually really anymore then why do they use them? because they don't want us to realize how far ahead they really are because we're not supposed to know. If we did know exactly all that they have, we'd be absolutely petrified. We'd be petrified. How would that affect... How far ahead they are. If we were all petrified, though, how would that really affect the power of those who have power? Mm-hmm. Well, they tell a lot of us to live in fear, but it also enables them, by using such high-tech, advanced equipment to carry out uh, further manipulation of where they want to bring the public uh, the public never figure it out they, 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 oh, we can't do that yet so that's not true that can't be happening but in reality yeah they are doing things and they have been for years using just uh, basic high tech stuff on all the public in the British newspapers it was admitted uh, in, after Gulf War One. When you saw all those, all those um, soldiers coming up out of the desert, very stunned, very confused, and they were like that for 24 hours, and they admitted in the British papers they did use uh, uh, electromagnetic pulse on those people. They admitted it was used. And it, it had tremendous effects. It also created a, a forms of uh, uh, holograms where the river appeared to be flowing backwards at one point. But they're also pounding them with uh, basically harp technology and scalar weaponry and uh, it's even in the UN charter and the UN has a treaty signed for the harp technology and all countries signed it and in what the effects that it could do was to bombard the public with uh, various mood altering techniques which would cause tremendous depression, confusion uh, and lethargy etc. Uh, almost uh, put into some nambulistic state and that was used and that was admitted in all the British papers at the time Now you say there is a uh, United Nations treaty mm-hmm. regarding that what does that treaty say? does it say you can or cannot use that? it says that countries that have signed the United Nations uh, agreement uh, must not be allowed to will not use it on each other but with all United Nations treaties that you notice, it never says that your own government cannot use it on the general public. Hmm. Just like um, the military cannot allow, uh, cannot use, um, say, hollow point bullets in warfare uh, and people abroad, but they can, they can use it on the public at home. And they do. Well, you know, uh, I have to... I have to say, I used to be a police officer, and uh, I was not military, but we carried hollow point bullets. Mm-hmm. That's what was issued. Yeah. 
And yet, if, that, if you were using that in a warfare situation with another country, uh, that would be illegal, and, and you'd be in prison for it. Well, and that explains, uh, you know, I never knew this. Um, I, uh, after serving as a police officer here in the United States, I became an international police officer, and we worked under the administration of, usually, the United Nations, mm-hmm. and we did not carry hollow points. Uh-huh. I never understood why. I always thought maybe uh, just an administrative decision, somebody made a purchasing decision or whatever, but it's actually that treaty, huh? It's the treaty. That's so that every country that's signed, if there's any trouble at home, they can use uh, more extreme weaponry on their own public. Yeah. And that's the same with the harp. In that treaty, I think it's 1977, uh, the Harp Treaty it states that uh, they have the ability now it's been tested and they can cause hurricanes to come in tornadoes they can guide tornadoes to any destination they can cause drought uh, or flooding earthquake with it and tremendous uh, physical effects on the population uh, which had been out apparently on the, on the population of Maine Apart, there was a lawsuit going in on, on behalf of them against the U.S. government for using them as guinea pigs. But over a period of time, they were using harp to see what effects, what mood effects it would have on them. And, uh, of course, all the information was channeled from doctors' offices, hospitals, social work departments, police, into, into the federal computers to collect all the data. And they found that uh, domestic animals were, were, were turning nasty. Uh, even cattle were charging people, the cows. Um, the, the, the suicide rate was the highest they'd ever gone. It shot right up. And when they tried a different frequency, the people got depressed. Um, they changed it again, and the people got very elated. Uh, and sometimes they got aggressive. So they were monitoring the psychological effects and behavior. And this was in Maine? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's a lawsuit going on now, huh? Yeah, it was going on a few years ago. I don't know what became of it. Mm-hmm. So, so you can always test on your own population, and they always have done. All right, we have to take a break, folks. <laughs> I'm learning some things tonight I didn't know. We'll be back in just a moment. My guess is Alan Watt. And welcome back to the Kevin Smith Show. My guest this evening is Alan Watt, and we are talking about, uh, I guess you could say, uh, a different view of history. Uh, It's easy to say a strange view, because it is something that most of us, perhaps, have not been exposed to, at least not not very deeply. And uh, so it may seem strange to us, and yet, Alan, you you have pretty well documented the stuff that you're uh, you're telling us about. You've written three books about this. Yeah. Um, what are the titles? Well, I, I just call them Cutting Through, and, and uh, it's because I'm cutting through this matrix that we've all been put into, and uh, I go through one, two, and three through the ancient uh, priesthoods and secret societies, which they had then, too, to infiltrate society and spy on them, really, you know, mm-hmm. and direct them up to the present time um, and how, how important they were to, for, for keeping control 
over population, vast populations, in fact, you know, because they were international, even even in the days of Sumer. Well, tell me about that. You say they were international, even in the in the days of Sumer. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about that, because that's uh, that is one part of the Sumerian history that uh, I've never been exposed to. Yeah, well, archaeologists have uh, documented, documented it well that uh, Sumer's biggest trading partner was uh, in the, up in India, the north of India. Mm-hmm. And uh, India seemed to be the main supplier of, of various types of goods. Sumer's main export was wool. And uh, they used uh, Bahrain, the island of Bahrain, is almost a trading uh, 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 Port where the, the, the stuff was brought from India, and that's where the, the priesthood sent out the merchants or, the, or their men. They had to hire the agents to, to do all the dealing, etc. Um, the priesthoods dealt with the, the finances. On one level, they had priesthoods who, who wrote the laws for real estate in Sumer. That's how far ahead they were. In fact, Sumer. Um, had all of the same conveniences you might say of today uh, when it came to shopping they, you could get a receipt uh, when you shopped at the market within 15 minutes they baked it in clay in 15 minutes hmm. and they found millions of these mm-hmm. uh, so uh, Sumer wasn't a little uh, primitive little place it had a very complex priesthood system so much so in fact that uh, in a book called Life Begins at Sumer, where they, they decipher many of the tablets that they found, um, even from the school children of bureaucrats. They bred the bureaucrats there, much like today. And, uh, and one of them said, I cannot look from horizon to horizon. I cannot see the horizons for government buildings. He said, we are taxed for everything. He said, when we bring fish in, he said, the government... Uh, officials are there to tax us when we sell things the government are there to tax us when the loved ones bury their dead and put offerings on the grave uh, uh, the death duties the death taxes have to be paid to the priesthoods uh, it was very much like today nothing uh, much has changed has it? <laughs> nothing <laughs> Not, you'd be so, so amazing to find out how similar it was and they had this system uh, pretty well all over uh, the ancient world at that time. Uh, later on, they found uh, in Crete, in the, in the Mediterranean, a huge library and a monastery, and it seemed to be a, almost a central priesthood who was in contact with all the different nations of that time. And many have speculated by the, by the, the writings they've found that these guys were actually updating or creating the different religions of the period. Speaking of the religions of the period, um, sometime later, after Sumer, in the same geographical area, you have the uh, Babylonians. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you've got uh, the uh, a priestly caste called the Magi. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they were kingmakers. They were not just religious. They were kingmakers. Yeah. Now, in all of these ancient religions, and in many countries around the world today, the clergy 
are either the government or they are above the government. Mm-hmm. Here in the United States, we 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 are champions of this uh, separation of church and state. And by champions, I don't mean we're the only ones that have it. I just mean that's a big deal to us. Uh-huh. So that uh, the religious leaders are not in control of the government. And uh, the government is not in control of religion, at least ostensibly uh, that's the way it's supposed to work. Uh-huh. Is it working that way? No. No, it never did, in fact. It never did. Um, uh, a very high Freemason uh, sent me a letter. I know, I know this guy. He's in Washington, D.C., and uh, he's listened to a lot of my talks on radio and he said you know Alan you're right every symbol I see around this city is high Freemasonic and when we go in and it's mainly the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry the symbols they're seeing mm-hmm. and when you go into the book by Albert Pike who was called the, the Pope of Freemasonry in the 1800s yeah. um, he says in, in his own book Morals and Dogma the book that was given to most Freemasons up to the, the 32nd degree he said, make no mistake, uh, Freemasonry is a, re- a religion. Mm. And since every president of the United States becomes an honorary 33rd degree of that order, you certainly do have a religion running your country. Now, that say that again. Every yeah. president of the United States becomes honorary 33rd degree. If they're not already, yeah. Yeah. How do we That's know why that? when you see George Bush Sr., the, the very first photo op they gave of him was with, the, I think, the New York Yankees, and he's wearing the, the, their, their pullover. Mm-hmm. And there's a number 33 right there, you know, on his pullover. That was, and of course I have the photographs of, of Ronald Reagan being given his uh, scroll and, uh, and the, the apron, etc., by the Scottish Rite. So that's a, that is a fact. And then if you go into the, the, the Freemasonic Encyclopedia, you have a whole list of all the presidents who've been uh, high Freemasons. Mm-hmm. Well, and Washington know, himself yeah, was. I was going to say, yeah. George yeah. Washington, that's a well-established fact. George Washington was. And that's why you've got an Egyptian obelisk, a brand new one now, for a new world order, um, built to him. He only built a, an obelisk to a, a person who had achieved godhood in the, in the mystery religion of Egypt and that's called apotheosis and because Washington had done such great work towards the great work as they call it he was raised to godhood apotheosis yeah so they raised people to godhood in mm, something like the same way that the catholic church raises people to sainthood pretty well yeah pretty well uh-huh. Yeah. So, so that's what Godhood means. You're raised to Godhood. Mm-hmm. You've achieved not only the the lower orders and, and understanding of of the philosopher's stone and and the different categories of understanding all the way up, and because of your work towards the great work, uh, you are considered a god. And even in the famous painting, you'll see there with around the table. And Benjamin Franklin made his speech at that table about it when he talked about Washington. 
in a very Masonic way, behind Washington is the rising sun right behind his head. Uh, it's all, all Freemasonic. Uh, Franklin himself was a member of, of Masonry. He wrote about it in his own newspapers. And uh, 33 signatories signed the, the declaration because you cannot, for the law, for, the, for those in the low orders, they're taught they cannot rise above the 33rd degree because the sun, like Jesus, starts his ministry at the 30th degree east and it's uh, parallel and it sets on the, the 33rd west. So that's why um, uh, they, they let the lower orders think there's only 33 degrees. How many are there really? 360. A circle? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, most of the... I have, I have known a number of Masons. I do know a number of Masons. Mm -hmm. And uh, the the uh, Masons that I know are people whom the ones I know who who have uh, a lot of integrity and who seem to be very patriotic, love the country, mm -hmm. and love their families, and yeah. do a lot of things that are good public service. Mm -hmm. But they've also sworn to obey an order by a superior and do it instantly and reserve all judgment of morality to the side. Do you think that most of them would adhere to that? Yeah. Because there's so much comes along with masonry. I was talking to one 32nd degree about a month ago and he agreed uh, after hearing a lot of my talks he says you know I didn't think about it he says I was just a farmer but he said I could go in to see a bank manager with no collateral down and ask for a bank loan and I could pick it up in the afternoon the average person couldn't do that so you get a lot of fringe benefits you can get off with a lot of uh, speeding tickets and uh, you can get a bed in the hospital much quicker than anyone else mm. uh, so, so there's a lot more to it uh, in fact, and also if you start a business off in a, in a town and you join the lodge, uh, they're, they're all sworn to give you business to bring custom your way. And so the little guy with the hardware store up the road there who's not a mason will be scratching his head wondering why no one's coming in his door. Wow, that's amazing. Amazing. We're going to continue with that in just a moment. We're back on the Kevin Smith Show. We're talking to Alan Watt, and uh, let's go to the telephone line. Uh, caller, if you will, tell us your uh, first name and where are you calling from. Hi, Kevin. It's Al again. I have a question for Alan. Uh, Ronald, if Ronald Reagan was a 33-degree Mason, um, he gave a speech, at, I believe, at the United Nations, and I think he was... Uh, making some kind of a comment that uh, if we were invaded or it would bring the nations together maybe it was the uh, comment was uh, geared towards uh, UFOs uh, what do you think uh, you think uh, we're that far off from the visitation uh, Kevin had a guest on last night I think it was Tom Horn that was speculating towards a possible uh, something happening uh, in the uh, imminent future where we might see something uh, happening in the skies. Or, so I guess that's my... How 
how far do you think that uh, uh, we might get some kind of a visitation, if any? Okay, were you able to hear that, Alan? I, I think so. Um, I'll hang up, uh, Kevin. Okay, Alan, thanks for the call. It, it should be prefaced, the answer should be prefaced in two parts, really. Uh, number one, they had meetings in the early 1900s about the possibility of using an, a threat from outer space to bring the whole world together uh, under a new type of government. Who the first man to, to express this was John Dewey. He made this. Uh, he mentioned this in speeches that if they could possibly convince the public of an attack from outer space, we would all band together, give up our national uh, nationalism, which they wanted to destroy, of course, and uh, bring us all together. Uh, this was repeated by many presidents, including Ronald Reagan. He made a few of speeches like this. Yeah. That if only there was um attack from outer space, we would all band together as one. Um, I think this may be... H.G. Wells wrote a book about it, uh, War of the Worlds. That was the same. And H.G. Wells worked for the British government. He was a propagandist for the Secret Service. And that has been declassified in Britain. Hmm. So you have the same sort of agenda they're convincing the public... Uh, because the whole idea for a new world order, uh, which is the United Nations' whole goal, is is to get us to give up our nationalism and fight against something. Um, now they can create holograms in the air. I've seen one already myself a few years ago, and uh, with a witness with me, mm -hmm. it was a definite hologram. And um, how do you uh, know it was a hologram? Uh, because it started off with what appeared to be the Northern Lights. And the Northern Lights generally, you know, they fly all over the sky at tremendous speeds. And this thing formed into an image right above me uh, of a figure with, with wings. And I thought, what on earth are they trying to make here? And I know that the Harp facility has admitted they can make holograms by manipulating uh, the ionosphere. Uh, so... I watched this for 20 minutes, and then uh, two nights later, a guy phoned Art Bell in Ontario, and he said uh, the same thing as I saw something in the sky being formed. And Art Bell, who's had everybody on, including uh, so many guys who claim that they are Satan themselves, mm -hmm. cut him off, and he says, what nonsense. I could never figure that one out, you know. Why wouldn't you let the man speak? Because I saw the same thing. The person with me saw the same thing. Mm -hmm. So don't don't always believe what you see. There are very high technological powers at play right now to convince us of uh, um, something else happening in order to change our whole way of living. And I always keep that in the back of my mind. Uh, it's been written about, documented from major speeches, and we should take it seriously. We shouldn't fall for what they want us to believe uh, right out the bat, you know. What's interesting to me, uh, listening to you, is that uh, you're referencing things in, in support of what you say. You're referencing documents that are in the public domain that people can go get their hands on it and read it. Mm -hmm. What's interesting to me is that these, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, power brokers or mm -hmm. the, the elite or whatever, 
seem to be out in the open with what they're doing. It's not really a conspiracy, is it? Well, I can, I can document on something else, and, and this is what people should look into. It was the the first fund put up by a major multi-millionaire, uh, probably a billionaire at the time even, and that was uh, Baron Rothschild in England in the 1800s. And he wanted to finance uh, writers, novelists, to write along certain lines of science fiction to prepare the minds of the young who would be excited with these stories so that they could bring in uh, scientific investigation um, using space rocketry, etc., in the following century, and the young would think it was all a natural direction in which to go. That was called predictive programming. And they hired thousands of, of novelists right up into the 1900s. Arthur C. Clarke was one of them. Uh, Hainan was another one that started the whole Mount Shasta thing off the New Age. Uh, he wrote a novel about it, a fictional novel. Now it's now they go there and worship. Um, and Arthur C. Clarke wrote the biggest occultic movie ever done, 2001, for the High Freemasons. Uh, and the New World Order was to kick off in 2001, and he wrote the book in the 1960s, and that's when they made the movie. It was to be completed by 2010, and that was the second movie. That was all an occultic story, those two stories. It had nothing to do with space, if you understand uh, the esoteric symbolism. Mm -hmm. Well, even even the Council for Foreign Relations publishes amazing statements and amazing speeches about uh, their plans for the future. Yeah. And uh, that's why, you know, I hear a lot of people talk about conspiracies, but if you're out in the open, that's not much of a conspiracy. H.G. Wells, who was one of their main propagandists and writers, for the British Secret Service and a founder of the Fabian Society which is just another branch of the CFR Royal Institute of International Affairs because they run both sides of everything H.G. Wells uh, wrote a book called The Open Conspiracy mm. and non-fiction yeah. and he said yes we are creating a new world order with, with a, under a world government it says the documentation we have put out for the public it's in libraries he says it's an open conspiracy. He says we tell them what we want to do, where we're taking them, and they don't want to read it. But the book is still out there. Yeah. Alan, we're out of time. Uh, listen, I want to thank you for coming on the show tonight. It's been fascinating. I appreciate you being here. That's a pleasure. Uh, tell us quickly your uh, web address. It's cuttingthroughthematrix.com. And, and is that uh, where my we name is Alan Watt. Yeah, and Alan, is that where we can get your books? Yes, uh huh. Okay. Again, thanks for being here. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here. I hope you'll make it a habit to come back again each and every night. I'll be back here again tomorrow night. I hope you will be too. Uh, my guest tomorrow night is going to be Robbie Thomas. We're going to be talking about dream interpretation. Had any strange dreams? Tomorrow night's the night to call in. My friends call me steel eye, my enemies do it too. You call me whatever you like. Just keep coming back. See you tomorrow night. So long, everybody.